doers of the word. Isn't that what Jesus called us to be? This is such a fantastic opportunity. I also want to um, just take a minute to say that this, um, this marks the end of a pretty hard week, doesn't it? Anybody else like me watching the news this week? Um, feeling, um, feeling just blown over. This marks the end of a really hard week. You don't have to have a kindergartner, which I do, to feel the pain that we're, that we're seeing right now. We have seen national and personal tragedy this week. We have come... So many of you are filling out these forms, and I want you to do that. So let me, let me, just, let me just wait. Let's, let's just take another minute... Fill out the form. I think that's going to be really important. It's not fair. We shouldn't tell you to fill out forms and then launch into something heavy eight seconds later. <laughs> fill out your form. Fill out your form. Get the name. Greg explained it really well. I can't explain it to you. There's blue paper. There's white paper. <laughs> Make it happen. I used to work at a church that had, like, it was a big church, and they'd have, like, screens behind where they would show the people who were talking, and I used to, I used to give announcements, and the people would never look at me, because they were looking at the 40-foot-tall version of me behind, and it was so disorienting. I was like, nobody's looking at me. Is anyone hearing me? That's the feeling I got right there. Good. Yeah? We're going to get to that for sure. For sure. We will definitely pray for the people in Connecticut. This week, we have come face to face with some unspeakable evil. And I just have to admit that in many ways, I was tempted to punt the entire sermon and kind of maybe do a talk on the problem of evil or a philosophical discussion of why bad things happen to good people. You'll be glad to know I quickly dropped those ideas. Instead, I am preaching today on the very next passage in our series in Matthew. And I think it can serve as an important lesson for us. At Crossroads, we will follow God wherever he leads us. We are not afraid to get off the page, amen? Sometimes I wonder if we have pages. Sometimes I wonder if we have pages, but we're not afraid to get off the page. But I think God has something really important to teach us this morning. Months ago, Neil and Rod divided up the book of Matthew into these sections. Months ago, Neil and Rod put these sections into a schedule and printed out copies for us, and they asked me to speak this morning, months ago. But I'm here to tell you this morning that God himself has ordained this message to land on this day. I have been studying our passage, Matthew 18, for a couple of weeks now, and it has prepared me to deal with the tragedies of this week. 
I invite you to turn there now, Matthew 18. If you don't have a copy of God's word with you, either snuggle up to somebody who does or raise a hand. We'd be happy to pass out. We have some blue um, copies of God's word that will help you. We need to hear from the Lord this morning, right? We need to hear from the Lord this morning. And I'm convinced that Matthew 18 is a word from our Lord to our situation this morning. Is anybody really surprised to hear that? Isn't this just like him? To have the right word for us at the right time. The God who made everything has a plan for today. I began this sermon by saying, in some ways, this marks the end of a very hard week. But in other, larger, more important ways, this marks the beginning of a new week. Sunday is a part of the weekend in name only. Followers of Jesus know Sundays actually mark the beginning of something new, something miraculously new. Listen, we serve a crucified master. We know all about Friday tragedies. But as Christians, we know Friday tragedies are never the end of the story, okay? Yeah, Sunday, we've been waiting for you, Weeping may last for a night. Joy comes in the morning. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Our passage this morning actually begins with the final story in chapter 17. We'll go all the way through all of chapter 18. I will read Matthew 17, 24 to 27. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma temple tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? Peter said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? When Peter said, from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, Go to the sea, cast a hook, take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that. Give it to them for me and for yourself. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, you are the one who reveals to us what a father is really like. And now, as your children, we ask that you would reveal your word to us so that we can live according to it for your glory, for our good. In the name of your Son, we pray these things. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Our passage this morning comes in six sections, six of them, okay? The first section is this story we just read about this temple tax. Second section is an argument about being the greatest in chapter 18, verses 1 through 6. Next, third, there's a discussion about fighting sin, verses 7 through 9. Fourth, there's a story about lost sheep. Fifth, there's a teaching about church discipline. Can't wait for that one. Sixth, there's a question and answer about forgiveness in verses 21 through 35. But I want us to see these stories like Matthew sees them. They're all connected. In, in this passage, Jesus is talking about one enormous topic, relationships in the kingdom of heaven, relationships in the kingdom of heaven, and he's going to hold this topic up like a large diamond, okay? 
In in Matthew 18, he's going to slowly rotate the six sides of this diamond. But without ears to hear, without eyes to see this, we cannot behold the beauty of what he is saying. Like the young man out ring shopping for the very first time, we have no idea what we're seeing. We have no idea what what we're seeing. It looks shiny. So does everything else we've seen today. Tinfoil is also shiny. What am I seeing? Jesus gives us clues to help us recognize this diamond's beauty in each of the facets. This morning, I'm gonna, we're going to go through, we're going to investigate these six sections. And to investigate it, we're going to use um, three questions as clues to investigate this. They're not going to sound revolutionary at first, but I think when Jesus is done turning the six sides of this diamond, my prayer is that we recognize the beauty and value of friendships, of relationships in the kingdom of heaven. And I pray that out of the joy of finding this diamond, we'll throw away our worthless tinfoil in order to embrace it. Here's our three questions that we're going to use as clues to investigate it. Here they are. Question one, what kingdom are you in? Which kingdom are you in? Secondly, how much power do you need? How much power do you need? Which kingdom are you in? How much power do you need? And thirdly, how high up do you belong in that kingdom? How high up? What's your place? How, what's your status in that? Which kingdom are you in? How much power do you need? And how high up do you belong? We're going to use these three clues to investigate each of these stories. We're going to trust the Holy Spirit to illumine our hearts. All right, section one. It's the story of this temple tax. We've already read the story. We're going to dive into the clues. First clue, which kingdom are you in is the question. And Jesus gives us two alternatives here, doesn't he? One he names explicitly and one he kind of just mentions sort of more implicitly. First in verse 25, he explicitly names the kings of the earth. It is so interesting that the kings of the earth are charging a temple tax. Isn't that interesting? Who, who owns the temple? Somebody tell me. Who owns the temple? Yeah, good, good. That was a Sunday school answer, wasn't it? God owns the temple. But notice, he's not charging the tax. Jesus implies that the temple here is working with Rome. And notice how Jesus describes what they do. They take toll and they tax. Who do they take this toll from? Not from the sons. What does your translation say? Who do they take the, the tax from? From others. Somebody have a, a New Living Translation? Foreigners. New Living Translation. Um, the the Lexum um, translation of the Bible, which is a very literal one, says um, those they have conquered. Here's the, here's the point. In the kingdom of this fallen world, the kings don't care about the people they tax. Now, please hear me. I am not making a comment about any political party this morning. I know less than nothing about this fiscal cliff thing, okay? If you want to come talk about politics, come up here to the front of the service, to the front of the thing right after the service, and I'm going to be over there by the cookies with the kids. So I'm not talking about that. The only thing Jesus says at this point about this other kingdom, which in a minute he's going to call the kingdom of heaven, is this really mysterious phrase, the sons are free. We're going to see what that means in a minute. Second clue. How much power do you need? How much power do you need? Well, Jesus' answer here is not a lot. How many would agree that 
In general, Jesus is not afraid of confrontation, right? Jesus is not afraid of confrontation. He argues with the scribes when they ignore God's word. He condemns the Pharisees when they hurt God's people. But here, when it comes to this temple tax, Jesus isn't exactly like 10 out of 10 on the fired up meter, right? In verse 27, one commentator writes, this is the strangest verse in the entire book of Matthew is verse 27. This is, I'm, I'm, I don't think I can get all the juice out of it. But in it, Jesus basically says, we don't need to fight for our rights here. We'll pay the tax out of the abundance that God provides. God's going to provide something. We're going to pay this tax out of the abundance of what he has provided. Okay, that's the end of the first section. Section two is this discussion about who's the greatest in the kingdom. Chapter 18. At that time, uh, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. First question, which kingdom are you in? Here the disciples are asking one of their most common questions, right? They ask this one in all the gospels, and several times in each of the gospel. Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? But the way Matthew's got this book structured right now, there's an edge to it. It's, we're gonna, we can see this question in a bit of a new light. Jesus has just talked about how he's going to die. He's going to die soon. And now the disciples are asking, well, who's the greatest? They're sort of asking, who's next in line? After you're gone, who's in charge? Who's the vice Jesus? And Jesus shows them that their whole question displays how little they really understand about the realities of the kingdom of heaven. Second clue, how much power do you need? Well, we've, we have to see past our own society's view of children to understand Jesus' point here. Our view, modern society's view of children are that children are pictures of beautiful innocence that need protection. In antiquity, though, things were different. Children were considered not innocent beings in need of protection, but incomplete beings in need of training. The word for child, a padion, can be synonymous with the word for slave, doulos. Here's the point. The child was subject to the unlimited authority of their father. You you see this really clearly in Galatians 4, verses 1 and 2. Here's the point. They're powerless. How much power does a child need? None, which is exactly what they have. Our third clue, what status should you have? The the clamor for status within the kingdom of heaven is nonsense to Jesus. He doesn't even understand it. In verse three, he says, unless you become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. In, In effect, he's saying, worry about your inclusion, not your importance, okay? Work, concern yourself with being in and not being cute. Get in, he says, remember, Brandon Hurst's message to us on the Beatitudes was so fantastic. This makes so much sense after our study of Matthew to this point. In a kingdom where the lowly are exalted, in a kingdom where the last become first and the meek inherit the earth, of course a child is going to be the greatest. Of course. Moving to to section 3. Verses seven through nine, this is on temptations to sin. Jesus says, woe to the world for temptations to sin. It's necessary for temptations to come, but woe to the one by whom temptations come. If your hand 
or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. First question clue, which kingdom are you in? Jesus gives us two examples right here in verse eight. He says it's better for you to enter, what's the word there? Life. It's better for you to enter life, that's one kingdom, than to be thrown into the eternal fire. A pretty clear choice here. There's no third option. There's entering life, there's being thrown into the eternal fire. Second clue. Maybe as a little aside, it's interesting that Jesus describes the eternal fire not as a choice that someone makes, but as something they're thrown into. Throne is also in Revelation 15. Um, the writer John picks up on that picture. Throne. A lot of implications in there we don't have time for this morning. The second clue, how much power do you need? Jesus flips our perceptions of power upside down here. We assume a person needs two eyes for the power to see where they're going. We would think a person with only one hand would be easier to throw around than a person who's got two hands. But look, the the two-handed person is thrown. We assume that the two-footed person is more powerful than the cripple or the lame, but Jesus says, hey, look, the lame man is the one who enters. The lame man is the the cripple man is the one who walks into the kingdom of life. The one-handed man gets gets a high five entering the kingdom of life. In contrast, the guy with two eyes didn't see the eternal fire coming. And for all of his quote-unquote power, he's completely powerless and thrown. How much power do you need? Jesus flips that upside down on us. Third clue, what status should I have? How high up should I be? Notice again the lack of rank in this teaching. There's two locations, life and fire. What status should you have? not concerned about it. Let me ask you, do you see the beauty of purity? Do you see it? Do you appreciate it? Specifically, this passage asks, what have you given up to be pure like this? And I don't mean have you burned all your non-Christian music. I think everybody goes through a little phrase where you do that, a little phase where you do that. When I'm talking about the the power, quote-unquote, power that the snake gave Adam and Eve, Here is Satan's ultimate lie in a sentence. You would make a better God than God. That's it. You would make a better God than God. It sounds so stupid when it's repeated that baldly, but we fall for it. God says, one man, one woman for life. But we say, I know better than that. God says, the pure in heart will see him. But we say, I can play around and not get hurt. Listen, listen, I've got two arms. I've got two legs. I've got two eyes. I've got the power to handle this. And you're getting thrown and you don't even know it. Lose the power to choose what is right. We don't get to choose what's right. We don't, we're not a better God than God. Let's lose the power to choose what's right and discover the entry to life. 
The fourth part, fourth section of our passage is this story about lost sheep. We can move now a little more quickly here with this fourth story. Some of the light from the earlier stories is going to help us see what this one is about. Pick up Christ's words in verse 10. Jesus says, see that you don't despise one of these little ones. I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my father who's in heaven. What do you think? A man's got a hundred sheep. One of them goes astray. Doesn't he leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the 99 that never went astray. It's not the will of my father who's in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Our three questions shine right here. Which kingdom are you in? Does your king care about you? Does your king care about you? The leader of the kingdom of this world, John 10 says, comes to steal, comes to kill, and comes to destroy. The kingdom of heaven couldn't be more different. It has a king with a huge heart, and it's a heart to go after those who are lost. It's a kingdom of incredible joy. Which kingdom are you in? Are you being killed? Are you being destroyed? Or are you being found? and being rejoiced over. Which kingdom are you in? Second clue, how much power do you need? In this story, the power that the little sheep has is the power to get lost. There he goes. And it's a power that we have exercised. The power that a person needs is actually a type of powerlessness. It's the power to be found. The the power, that's the power we need, is the power to be found. To be found. How strong do you need to be found? That's the sort of power you need. Third clue. What sort of status should you have? I remember when I was about 10 years old, I was um, um, at Indian Hills Mall with my parents and my my brother, who's two years younger. And um, we were going through the mall like we always did. And they had like a little play area that had like arcade games. It, It was pretty cool. And um, we were playing there, and there was like a little boy who was like on one of the, the car things driving. And as we were, um, we were there a couple minutes, and my parents were like, all right, let's, it's time to go. You've had your fun. Now it's time to go to Payless Shoe Stores or something. And so we were getting, and my mom noticed like, this little boy isn't with anybody. Like, hey, honey, who, where, where's your mom and dad? And he's like, in the game, driving, like. So we actually, like, I, I remember this part really clearly. Other parts of the detail are, like, in that fog of being a kid. But um, we took him to the, um, the information desk. We walked, like, past the food court, found this information desk, and they made, like, a call over the loudspeaker. And, like, you know, would someone who's missing a child, you know, like that... And I remember walking away, we left the kid with a security guard and we walked away and the kid was so mad at us because we had pulled him away from his game, which um, he wasn't playing. He didn't even know that like you have to put coins into play. He was just like watching the demo and he thought he was like playing and he didn't even realize he was lost. The the kid's lost. Uh, Isn't that us? Isn't that us? We're lost. We don't even know. We don't even know we're lost. We think we're racing. In God's kingdom, the sheep say, I get lost really easily. Where should I be on this social status ladder? I should be exactly where the shepherd puts me. Is that you? 
Or are, are you clamoring and fighting for a place? Section five, this teaching on church discipline, verses 15 through 20. Now we come to the, the fifth section of the passage, and it's this section on church discipline. No wonder Rod and Neil asked me to teach on this. Let me begin by saying I am not a pastor in this church, nor do I serve as an elder here. I have no idea about some of the ways that this may be playing itself out inside of our church. So if you feel any conviction here, I'm not like talking to anybody specifically. It's just the Holy Spirit. Listen up. Verse 15, Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, just gained your brother. If he doesn't listen to you, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence or two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now just before we like go too crazy on that Gentile and tax collector, what does Jesus think about Gentiles and tax collectors, by the way? It loves them. So, like, don't think that this is some sort of, like, huge punishment. It just means that you have to treat them like they're not a part of your family. They're, out, they're outside the family. You still love those people, and you're trying to win them into the family. You don't treat them like they're never talk to them, you, but you deal with them in a different way. Here's our three clues again, our three questions. Which kingdom are you in? Notice first how Jesus describes this relationship in verse 15. How does he describe the person who has sinned? What's the, what's, how does he describe him? Somebody over here. These people are answering me really loud. Somebody over on this half. How does he describe him? Your brother. Your brother. Isn't that... I love the kingdom of heaven like changes relationships. Changes relationships. You see this in the book of Philemon, okay? In the book of Philemon, um, it's the story of this... Um, it's the story of this runaway slave. And so from the world's perspective, there's this guy named Philemon, who's uh, super wealthy. He owns slaves. He's like a big, big shot. Secondly, there's this guy named Onesimus who uh, ran away. He's a runaway slave. He's illegal. He ran away. And the third guy in the story is Paul. Ooh, you hearing that? Third guy in the story is Paul, and he's, um, he's a prisoner. He's in jail. So you've got one wealthy guy, one illegal guy, and one criminal, like, What's going on here? Well, the kingdom of heaven flips that upside down. Paul says, look, like Philemon, you're my son. Onesimus is also my son. Therefore, the two of you are your brothers. Your brothers. And Paul's like, you know what? I am. I'm your. You're going to flip when you see, if, if you ever look at Philemon again. He, he, he's... Your English translations put your father, but the Greek says, I gave birth to you. He's like, listen, I'm your mom. Don't make me come back there, okay? That's, that's Paul in that passage. It says, I gave birth to you. It's a, it's, a, it's a little metaphor he uses in a couple of different places that I don't know if our translators can really handle. But it's like in 1 Corinthians, it's in Galatians. I wrote down the Galatians passage because it's so obvious there. Galatians 4.19, Paul uses this metaphor. Listen, you guys, I gave birth to you. I gave birth to you. You guys are brothers. 
work this out. The kingdom of heaven flips relationships. If you're a part of the kingdom of heaven, your relationships have been transformed at the most fundamental level. Second clue, how much power do you need? So interesting. Look how the process that Jesus describes here protects helpless people. This is a protecting process, okay? Jesus is drawing here on an Old Testament principle that's found in Numbers 35.30 and Deuteronomy 17.6. And then it's kind of fleshed out in Deuteronomy 19.15 through 21. Without needing to turn there, let me just kind of tell you what it's talking about. The passage in Deuteronomy um, begins by explaining one person's testimony is not enough to convict someone. Not just one person. And then the remaining verses talk about how to take care of dealing with a malicious witness or a false witness. This requires multiple witnesses to protect an accused person against dishonest or mistaken testimony. This would be especially necessary if the accused person was a weaker individual being confronted by a more powerful opponent. Citizens of the kingdom of heaven, they don't have to fight for their rights. They don't fight to prove that they're right. They need the power to fight for the good of another person, for the good of their brother or their sister. They're fighting, I love this phrase, to gain your brother. That's what kingdom relationships fight for. They fight for the good of each other. And it's not, I hope you have real friends. If you have not been confronted by someone in the last Six months, you, you don't have friends. You don't. Here's a good New Year's resolution. Find some friends that will be able to help you and point out, raise your hand if you're completely perfect, okay? So if, you, if you're not completely perfect, then you need to have relationships with people who know you and who can speak into your life. I remember very vividly early in my ministry a guy who pulled me aside and said, I'm concerned about the way you talk to your wife. Ouch. That hurt a lot. I was like, well, you don't understand. I was kind of joking, like we have this kind of like jokey, sarcastic marriage. He's like, that's terrible. (laughs) Okay. He's right. And he wasn't, didn't pull me aside, wasn't spreading rumors about me with my friends, just pulled me aside and like, hey, I just see this. You got something on your face, man. You got to, I don't know if you see this or not. They're called blind spots for a reason, okay? Just take care of that thing. Just take care of it. And be that sort of friend. We're not, be that sort of friend. Do you have perfect friends? No, you don't have perfect friends. Be the sort of person that can draw their attention to ways that they can grow. You have to be careful and fight against the I'm okay, you're okay sort of small group. The don't bring up my sin and I'll ignore yours. The you confess your frustration and I'll agree that we all struggle in exactly the same way. And then we'll agree to use the word frustration because frustration's not a sin. We don't have to confess it. If we called it anger, then it might get serious in here, but we'll just kind of like label it with something else that Jesus never died to solve. Just, okay, it's just frustrating. Like, no, listen, the kingdom of heaven, 
We just read it. The kingdom of heaven consists of a lot of one-handed, one-footed, one-eyed, crippled people entering life. And some of that is because these sorts of kingdom relationships are what they're surrounding themselves with. Third clue, what sort of status should you have? Again, Jesus isn't describing someone who's clamoring for renown. It's a fight for reconciliation, not a fight for being right. I've had to have several conversations recently where I've had to lovingly meet with somebody and say, look, there's sin in your life. And as someone who cares for you, and as someone who cares about the outcome of your faith, cut that hand off for heaven's sake, literally. Our final section here is Peter's question and answer about the, with the unforgiving of servant. Verse 21, Peter came to Jesus and said to him, Lord, how often will... How often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. Seven's like the, if you've been to Crossroads, you know Rod at all. You know seven's the number of completion, right? Seven days, seven dwarves, seven. (laughs) So seven times is a pretty good guess. Jesus says to him, I don't say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like this. It's like a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, what was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents? That doesn't mean like the ability to juggle. It's, it's, a, it's a wage. That means 20, one talent is 20 years of income. 20 years of income. Just... Just think about the other stories in the Bible that mention talents, right? It's like the guy, people are given talents. One guy's given one. One guy's given three. One guy's like, who's the guy that gets the most talents? Five. It's the guy that gets five talents. Like, whoa, that's a hundred years of income he was just given. And just, here's the verse again. There was a man who brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. The servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me. I'll pay you back everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, a couple months, two, two months wage. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay me what you owe! And his servant fell down and pleaded with him very familiarly, Have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you have not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had on you? And in his anger, the master delivered him over to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. First clue, which kingdom are you in? This man is going to show us 
the emptiness of life in the kingdom of the world. You have to understand how much this parable would have made its hearers laugh. This was hilarious. This is the story of a man who borrowed a credit card and bankrupted Bill Gates. Found Bill Gates' credit card, ran around that whole day, buying stuff, buying stuff, and Bill Gates calls into his office and is like, you owe me $2 trillion. It's 200,000 years worth of income. 200,000 years worth of income. That's, that's a hopeless situation. Do you feel how hopeless this is? This is an unpayable debt. But you don't get this parable unless you see yourself here. You have spent God's resources without paying him. You have spent his resources without giving him the glory he deserves. You've done it. Second clue, how much power do you need? Think about the power trip that this guy is on. He owes 200,000 years worth of income. And when he's confronted with it, what does he say? Have patience with me, and I will pay it back. 200,000 years of patience? And that's if you don't spend any of it. That's if you don't, you're not, there's no food for you for 200,000 years. You're not paying a mortgage for 200,000 years. Have patience with me. I got this. Like the, the room just like burst out. Like, oh, no, 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 leave it with me. I've got a plan. What a senseless thing to say. He thinks he can do this. Isn't that our instinct, though? That's our instinct. I'll pay God back. Ooh, I know I did wrong there. I feel it. Holy Spirit tugs at my heart. Okay, okay. I know what I can do. I'm going to be nice to people. I'm going to be nicer, nicer. I'm going to be nice-ish. I'm going to give money to that charity. That, just need a little bit more time. I'm going to be kind to other people. I'm going to go to church. I think this is, I feel it, circumstances in your life help you recognize how much you actually owe God. You're like, I'm going to church. I think two or three months of church attendance should really get this behind me. You don't recognize it. Listen, your first response, that's all of our first responses. Your first response must not be your lasting response. Notice how this man reacts to the king's generosity. The king forgives his debt. Now watch the guy leave the throne room with his his head held high. I did it, he thinks. I'm going to go call up Mrs. Debtor, tell tell her how I just sweet-talked the king. I got this. He doesn't get it. And it shows by the way he approaches his fellow servant. I love that, fellow servant. Here's the third clue. What status should you have? There's no clamoring here. We are fellow servants. Don't think that we're changing the subject from what Jesus was talking about at the beginning. Again, paideia, child, doulos, servant, slave are used synonymously in the text sometimes. Jesus wants to see this as part of the same diamond. How can we have this mindset? 
How can we have a heart for the least? Here's how. By understanding what the unforgiving servant missed. The servant thinks, I've got a brand new bank account. I've got a brand new bank account balance. Yes. What he misses is he's got a brand new relationship with the king. This is the gospel. This is the very essence of the gospel. Here's the bullseye. God forgives 200,000 years of mounting debt. You were in debt. Someone had to pay it. Who could pay this? Can't it just be forgotten? Can't just Bill Gates just call Visa and say, not this month? No, it has to be paid. Jesus came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Like Neil showed us, Jesus sinks so that we can stand. How can we be a part of this kingdom? We've got to recognize that we're not the boss. We're not the king. We are hopeless debtors in need of that ransom. We're not the powerful father. We're the needy and the powerless children. And when we get that, when we really get that, we can be free. Free from the debt, sure but also free from the tyranny of chasing power after it again. Disappointed when I didn't get it. We can be free from the tyranny of chasing status, watching people around me, seeing if they're getting ahead of me, wondering why that promotion went to that person when really I feel like I was just probably even a little bit, if they knew about that person, then... And free from those things and released into the knowledge that as Jesus tells us, The sons are free. The sons are free. This new kingdom, it's not a taxing kingdom. It's not a a kingdom that takes tolls. The sons are free. In closing here, how does this prepare us to live in a world with school shootings? How does this prepare us to live in a world of unspeakable evil? Here's how. It teaches us that what we are facing is not merely psychological or social dysfunction. It's evil. It's evil. And evil has never liked children. Evil Canaanite deities insisted upon child sacrifices. Evil Pharaoh in Egypt insisted upon killing Israelite children. And evil Herod, Christmas time reminds us, insisted on slaughtering children when his throne was threatened. Know this for a fact. These attacks on children spring from a satanic root. Satan hates life in general. And he hates children in specific. He hates children with their newness of life and their dependence And their trusting dependence, he hates it because it's a picture of Jesus himself. That's why. His attack against the least of these is an attack against Jesus. The satanic powers want the kingdoms of this world, and a child is the one who has uprooted them. How do we respond to this evil? We grieve. We grieve, we demand justice. We war against sin. How can we play around with sin? How can we play around with sin in our lives? Look what sin does. 
Why, why do we merely manage sin? Why do we minimize it and tinker with it and rationalize it and keep it safe over here and protect it from getting exposed? Let's kill sin. Romans 8, it's, it's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. It says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Kill sin. That's the appropriate response. Let us remember the child of Christmas, this child slash servant, this suffering servant, this prince of peace who will soon crush Satan and all of his schemes underneath our feet. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, we thank you for showing us the beauty of relationships in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus, thank you for your great example. You call us to become like a child. Jesus, you became a child. But you're... You're much more than an example to us. You're more than our teacher. You're more than just an example. You are also our savior. You're our shepherd who found us and brought us home. You're the debt payer who has, and, and the ransom who has changed our very lives. Help us. Help us, God, to live as citizens under your wonderful reign. It's in the name of of our great King Jesus, who brought us back to the Father, that we pray these things. Amen. Amen.